Uh, I'm curious, how many of you uh, arrived here this morning and you're a bit distracted because something's going on in your life that you really don't want to happen, you're suffering in some way? I'm, I'm curious, how many would say, that's, that's me? Mm-hmm. So we have a sermon for you today. As we've been continue, uh, continuing our apologetics series, um, question of the morning sermon is suffering disproves God right and uh, just a FYI I'm probably going to disappoint some of you um, you want more answers than I'm going to give this morning but uh, just to encourage you the end of May I'm going to start a four week series on suffering and uh, we'll be able to plumb the depths a bit more Uh, during those weeks. Let's pray and then uh, we'll dive in. Father, it was our weaknesses that Jesus carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. We thought his troubles were a punishment from you, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins beaten so that we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us like sheep have strayed away. We've left your paths to follow our own. And yet you laid on him our sins. He was unjustly condemned, led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream. But he was struck down for the rebellion of us. He'd done no wrong, never deceived anyone, yet he was buried like a criminal put in a rich man's grave. But it was your good plan to crush him, to cause him grief. And yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have, he does have, many descendants. He will enjoy a long life, and the Lord's good hand plan will prosper in his hands. I am convinced, Lord, that the easiest way to untangle our confused fears, doubts, anger in the midst of disappointments in our lives is for us to look yet again at the cross and be reminded that the one you loved most you brought to great grief not as punishment but far, far far greater purposes in mind and even for ourselves when we go through the valley of the shadow of death we go through dark dark waters to be reminded that this is not typically or necessarily an indicator of your anger but rather something that ultimately will contribute to your glory and bear good fruit in our lives as well and so I pray that your Holy Spirit would 
um, nourish our souls today. The Word of God would bring clarity to perhaps questions we have. We'd be a little bit better equipped uh, after today to have conversations with people who think that this is kind of, uh, um, this, is, this is the final say in, in a, a claim that there's a good and all-powerful God in the world, that suffering disproves that. And uh, pray that we would be ready, willing, and able to give a, a reason for the hope that we have, yes, even in the midst of suffering. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the year was uh, 1971. A friend uh, of mine and I jumped in my car and uh, we drove to Washington, D.C. to visit an aunt and uncle of mine. I was 18 years old. My uncle was uh, probably 24 or so. My uncle had grown up in a Christian home, uh, made a profession of faith, was baptized and um, was the president of his senior class at his Christian high school, went to a Christian college. And his last two years in college, this is the height of the Vietnam War, protests in the streets and on college campuses across the country. Uh, it was a volatile time, um, it seemed like the country was blowing up. In those last two years in his college, uh, he began to wrestle with some big questions and by the time I had gone to visit him he had abandoned Christian faith entirely uh, he was uh, deeply involved in the anti-war movement he was uh, downtown DC on many days of the week um, part of protest marches got arrested several times and so Saturday evening as we're having the meal I finally got to ask him the question I'd come to ask him and uh, I'll call him Bill. I said, Bill, why, why did you abandon your faith? And he said, well, he said, I looked around at everything I saw from poverty to war to injustice and on and on. And I simply could not reconcile all that with a good God and a powerful God. And this is the number one objection that your non-Christian friends have to Christianity. And after pastoring almost 29 years, it's also the number one objection Christians have to the Christian life. I hear it again and again and again and again. Why am I going through this? Why do I have to endure this? Why must I suffer like this? Where is God in the midst? Now, before we get into the scripture, let me just, let me just have you ponder the alternative. Think for a minute that we write God out of the equation. You're still suffering. You're still going through what you're going through. But now there's no God uh, on, on his shoulders to hang either the blame or the credit for what you're going through. 
Richard Dawkins, atheist, in his book, River Out of Eden, A Darwinian View of Life, says this, in a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are gonna get hurt. Some people are gonna get lucky. And you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties that we would expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. That's our alternative. If we dispatch God, that's our alternative. Not a world liberated to be profoundly good and other-centered as the most prominent atheistic voices today argue, but rather a Darwinian world liberated to be profoundly violent and self-centered. Because after all, by what people do to each other in the streets, in the prisons, on our screens at home, or our street screens in our hands, in the suburbs, in the barrios, at the front lines, in politics, no one can show any of us how human beings are evolving into something more and more noble. And that is the argument of the modern atheists, that we are becoming better and better and better. Teach a word, new word today for some of you, theodicy. Theodicy, T-H-E-O-D-I-C-Y. Definition of theodicy is a, an answer to why God permits evil or suffering. And you and I need this for our friends. And we need this for those who are strangers to God. And you need this for you and I need this for me. Because the fact of the matter is, loved ones die. We had in our congregation in the last two weeks, we've had, I think, six parents of people in the church pass away. Spouses move out. Unexpected bills come due that we can't pay. Jobs end. Children are born with disabilities. Cancers are everywhere. Car wrecks leave people paralyzed. There's infertility and on and on and on. We need all of us, theodicy. And maybe just to say that we all have a theodicy, whether we knew what the word meant before or not. We all have, a, we all have an explanation for ourselves, one way or another. It might be a full-blown explanation uh, that's biblical, or it might be simply what we conclude. Just this makes the most sense to us. Or, for that matter, we might be on the way out like my uncle it's just that the temperature hasn't been turned up quite high enough yet it probably will be one day all right so here's going to be our framework we're going to we're going to talk first about three possible answers again uh, the, what is the uh, what is the explanation for why there's evil and suffering in the world if there's a good god who's all powerful i'm going to give you three possible answers they're all wrong and then I'm going to give you God's answer. And then we'll talk about how to deal, how to minister to people who are suffering uh, 
more than simply give them answers. So first three possible answers. The first one is, maybe God is not good. Maybe God's not good. Maybe he doesn't care about your suffering. You come down with cancer and he's like, shrugs his shoulders, no biggie. Your spouse dies, not that big of a deal to him. And you wish that God would be concerned about you. Maybe that would make sense. God just doesn't care. The only problem with that argument is the testimony of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation says otherwise. Even the people who think that God in the Old Testament is a more miserable and mean God than the one in the New Testament can't miss Exodus where God by his own testimony says I'm slow to anger abounding in love full of compassion and Jesus himself in response to the rich young ruler in Luke 18 uh, ruler asked Jesus what must I do to inherit eternal life and he prefaces the question by addressing Jesus this way good rabbi, good teacher? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, well, first of all, let me ask you about the way you addressed me. You call me good teacher. There's no one good but God. Now, some people look at that and say, oh, Jesus never claimed to be God. He never claimed to be perfect. But Jesus was pressing him. Why are you saying this to me when we all know, all good Jews know that only God is good? But the point is, everybody agreed with that. And Jesus declares that only, only God is good. He didn't just say God is good. He says only God is good. So we either have to say the testimony of Scripture is wrong, Jesus is mistaken. Or what God says about himself, what his son says about himself, what his revelation says about himself is true. And that is that it is good. And goodness means that he cares about you. And he cares about what you're going through. That's not an answer that we can make peace with. So maybe the flip side is that God's not great. If he's good, maybe he's not great, meaning maybe he doesn't have the power to stop what's happened to you. If you're old enough, you may remember a book that came out in the 1980s by a rabbi named by the name of Harold Kushner. The title was, Why Do Good Things, or Bad Things Happen to Good People? He wrote this in the wake of his 14-year-old son's death of a very, uh, from a very rare disease. And he concluded that God does the best he can, but he really can't control everything. God may be good, but he's not great. He does not have the ability. He doesn't have the uh, capacity. He doesn't have the strength to somehow make sure that what you're going through stops. You just can't pull it off. Now, there's, there's a variation on this that some people have where they say, well, the devil is creating all this suffering. But if you think about that, the implication is the devil is more powerful than God. God can't 
undo whatever the devil is doing. And there are, there's a slice of Christians today who blame everything that's bad in their lives and their friends' lives on the devil. That's who's at fault. And if, if the, I just need to re, keep rebuking the devil and so forth. And it's almost as if God, God doesn't have any ability to interfere. Of course, if you go back to Matthew 4 and you see Jesus and the devil going mano a mano out in the wilderness, you saw Jesus win. And the scripture tells us that Jesus came and died to destroy the works of the devil. So this idea that there's somehow this opponent to God who's got more muscle than God does. It doesn't, it doesn't fly in scripture. And Jesus, again, Jesus' testimony is that Matthew 19, 26, with, with God, all things are possible. He can do anything. There is no limits on his power. And there's no one who is stronger than he is. So we can't agree that God's not good. We can't agree that he's not great or all-powerful. The next answer is the one most often given by Christians. And as I've been looking at apologists' arguments for suffering, this is the one that's most often given to explain suffering. Maybe, I put it this way on purpose, maybe free will is God. Maybe free will is God. I've been reading a book written by James Emery White. He's a pastor of a megachurch in North Carolina, uh, over 10,000, I think. And he also, he's, this guy's no slouch. He has a PhD. He was once the um, president of uh, Katie Joyce College, Gordon College up in Massachusetts, a well-known evangelical. Uh, actually, he was the president of the seminary. And the title of his book is Christianity for People Who Aren't Christians. It's all about apologetics. And he makes this comment. God is not behind what is tragic in this world, much less responsible for it. People are. People are. And Gregory Boyd, in a, a book that he wrote, a pastor, a seminary professor, a book that he wrote a number of years back, entitled, Is God to Blame?, went even further. He says, God simply can't. I, I don't know of any Bible verse that begins with God can't. God simply can't override free wills whenever they might conflict with his will. Because God decided to create this kind of world, he can't ensure that his will is carried out in every situation. He must tolerate and wisely work around the irrevocable freedom of human and spirit agents. In other words, God has said, this is the effect of that, God has said free will is going to be God because free will is in charge. Let's just say for the, for the moment, let's just run with that. So what do you do with a tsunami that kills 250 million people. What do you do with a tornado that blows through a town in Kansas, levels the town, and kills a dozen people? Are you following what I'm saying? Who, 
whose free will is responsible for that suffering? What do we do with E. coli or Ebola or miscarriages or multiple sclerosis? Or a woman whose car breaks down in a remote stretch of highway during the winter and this mother of four freezes to death. What do we do with those things? Nobody's bad free will is involved here. And and maybe to push this a little bit further, is it really more comforting and consoling to us if free will rules? So would you, for example, prefer believing that God won't help you in your time of suffering because free will is ruling things? Or would you prefer believing God didn't help you because whatever it is, he's got a plan and you know that he loves you and you know that he's good. And this to me, this next one is the one that I think about always when conversations about the extent of free will are involved. Does that mean we should pray to free will? Because after all, if God has referred his power to human free will, why in the world would we pray to God for for him to change the heart of our friend who is hostile to God, and we say, God, soften his heart, draw, draw him to the Savior. Why would we do that if God has said, no, I, free will is in charge? And just for the record, I believe in an honest-to-goodness, authentic will that we have, but I don't use the word free because that implies that it is totally autonomous and independent from God, and now God is really subject to our decisions. By the way, that Gregory Boyd that I referenced in his book, he went a little further a couple years later and concluded the natural implication of an completely independent free will is that God can't know everything. And so he wrote a book saying that God doesn't know everything. Why? Well, if our will is actually independent of God, then he can't know what we're going to decide. Are you following the, the logic of that? So, in my opinion, those are all three wrong answers. I think they're biblically argued. So, here's God's answer. Suffering answers to me. God's answer to us is that suffering answers to me. That doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to relieve you of your suffering. It doesn't mean I won't. It just means that all suffering answers to me. Let me give you a number of scriptures for that. And again, we're going to delve into this in more detail uh, starting in May. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 9, says this. We can make our plans, but the Lord determines our steps. Now that little word but was inserted there so that we understand that God is always the one who has the big hand. He's always the one who has his finger on the king in chess. Nobody can checkmate him. 
You can make your plans to go skiing this weekend, but God controls the weather and he controls the temperature and your plans might need to change. We can make our plans, but the Lord determines our steps. He, we, we say, I'm going to do this. It's a reason that James says, you know, we, we, should, we should not say, I'm going to do business in this city on this weekend. We should say, if the Lord wills, I'm going to do business in this city on this weekend. We can make our plans, but the Lord determines our steps. Now, some of you who know your Bibles well know that we shouldn't build doctrine on the book of Proverbs. It is, after all, a collection of wise sayings that typically are true, but they're not promises. They're statements about things regarding relationships and finances and families and, and worship and so forth and so on. But we should be cautious about building doctrine ex, ex, uh, exclusively on things that we read in the book of Proverbs. So... Let's look at some other scriptures. Isaiah probably has as much information about how God is in charge as any other book in the Bible. Let's look at Isaiah 14. Isaiah 14, beginning of verse 24. <clears throat> the Lord of heaven's armies has sworn, your, your version might say the, the Lord Almighty, has sworn this oath. It will all happen as I have planned. It will be as I have decided. I will break the Assyrians when they are in Israel. I will trample them on my mountains. My people will no longer be their slaves nor bow down under their heavy loads. I have a plan for the whole earth, a hand of judgment upon all the nations. The Lord of heaven's armies has spoken. Who can, who can change his plans? When his hand is raised, who can stop him? There are a number of people who have intentions in this passage. They have plans. Their will has decided that this is going to happen. The commanders of Assyrian, the Assyrian army is going to come against Israel and they're going to defeat Israel and they're going to conquer them. They're going to take the people captive. I'm going to do this. The king has intentions for his army. Israel has plans. And then he goes on, the whole earth has plans for itself, but he has plans as well. And it's clear in this text that God's saying, whatever you decide, whatever the people plan, my plan is going to checkmate that. I am, after all, running the show. And one last verse I want to share with you. I do mentoring with guys. Sometimes I have them memorize this. Ephesians chapter 1, verse, second part of verse 11. He's talking about how God chooses us in advance, and that's a whole other topic in another sermon. And it says, and he makes everything work out according to what I want. Is that what he says? Read it with me. He makes everything work out according to his plan, his plan. In other words, God has this massive, big picture plan. And it is going to come to pass. Within that, you and I make decisions all the time. And they're not forced, they're not required. We say, I wanted to do this, but God wouldn't let me do that. I mean, there's some times where we sense that. But we have real honest-to-goodness ability to make choices. And yet, God has a big plan. And he is going to carry it out. 
to the extent that God even oversees your suffering. He's involved with every aspect of every grief you endure. Everyone. Now we have to, we have to walk a very fine line in understanding this because if we go too far this way, we blaspheme God by making him weak. If we go too far this way, we blaspheme God by making him sinner, a sinner. And James 1.13 says that God cannot be tempted to sin, nor does he tempt anyone else to sin. So even though he oversees all everything, including sin, wickedness, evil, and suffering, he cannot be charged with sin himself, nor is he tempted to sin, nor does he tempt anyone else to sin. But the bottom line is suffering, God says, suffering answers to me. And the second thing that God says about suffering is that suffering serves a purpose. Suffering serves a purpose. Let me take you to Romans chapter 9, verse 17. Romans 9, 17. Uh, Romans 9, 10, and 11. This is, this is probably um, the passage in the New Testament that will take your breath away more than any other portion of Scripture because God in these chapters, um, th th there's no um, tiptoeing around the fact that he is in charge. And he says in verse 17, um, it's, it's interesting to read the story of God's dealing with Pharaoh in the early chapters of Exodus. And you'll see time and time again, it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. There's a couple times where it says Pharaoh hardened his heart, but over and over again, it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And he says here in Romans 9, 17, for the scriptures say that God told Pharaoh, I have appointed you for the very purpose of displaying my power in you and to spread my fame, and you, you might say glory there, that's what he's talking about, to spread my glory throughout the earth. I want people to know me, to know who I am, to know what I'm like and what I can do. And Pharaoh, you're gonna be my tool to display that to the world. God, let me say it this way, God wants to be made much of. God wants to be made much of. He wants to be recognized. He wants to be worshiped. And you might say, well, wait a minute. If I would say that about myself, God would frown on me and he would rebuke me. You want to make much of yourself? Then no, that's a bad thing. God resists the proud and he gives grace to the humble. The problem is we, we, we need to make sure that we keep God up here where he belongs and not down here. And what that means is that God is the most glorious, the most powerful, the most amazing, the, the goodest being in the universe. And the only one worthy of being worshipped, the only one worthy of being praised And so when God seeks his own glory, you know, that, that flies in the face of us because we, in turn, seek our own glory. 
And not just adulation of other people, but when I say our own glory, I mean the kinds of things that satisfy us and please us. So our comfort and our happiness and our pleasure. And so if you and I were prescribing the world, we were making the world the way we want it to be, we would, we would de- describe or we would create a world that is, we've got smooth sailing, right? We're not gonna hurt, we're not going to grieve, we're not going to suffer. But if God is after his own glory, and some of you have experienced this, you have suffered in deep, deep ways probably in some ways that nobody else will ever find out about, even your spouse. And in the, in the, either in the midst of that suffering or in the wake of that suffering, after it's all over, there, there is a, something has, has changed in you. You will never be the same again. And you are more Godward, you are more worshipful, you, are more, you would praise him quicker even in difficulties you you've been deeply impacted by your suffering now admittedly when suffering comes we tend to run one of two directions either toward God or away from God and some people run away from him but those who hang in there who believe the promises and the tributes to God in scripture tend to run toward him and they are deeply impacted for the glory of God in ways they weren't before this, this is not intuitive for us, especially in our culture, in a culture that promotes the pursuit of prosperity and satisfaction and pleasure and personal peace. This, this is not intuitive. And we have to fight against it. And make no mistake about it, we have to fight against it in the church. Because Christianity, its modern variation is increasingly dialed away from God's glory. Again, I'm going to refer to uh, James Emery White's book. He makes this statement, page 48. God made us in order to love us. There's a half-truth in there. God loves us. But he's saying that the reason you were created was so God, it's almost as if God's, um, <clears throat> God's unfulfilled, he's unsatisfied, He. He's missing something. It's kind of like, I want to get married. I'm, there, there's something missing in my life. I remember my wife and I were married um, almost six years before we had our first child. And, and we got married really young, and so we wanted to enjoy our time together and get to know each other well before we had children. And we both came to this place at, at the same, about the same time where we said, you know what, there's, there's something missing in our relationship. We, we want to take the next step to have, have children it's almost like God's like, well, I'm, life is good, but I need people. I need people, really? God made us in order to love us. It's not what the scripture says. Let me take you back to Isaiah again, 43. Isaiah 43, verse 7. God says, bring all who claim me as their God, for I have, read it with me, made them for my glory. He fashioned you out of nothing 
for his glory. He made us so that we might make much of him. And make no mistake about it, that is going to include suffering. In fact, God's glory is often seen better in our suffering than in our personal satisfaction. I put it this way, God is glorified in our pains as well as our pleasures. C.S. Lewis put it this way, God whispers in our pleasures but shouts in our pain. And so he sometimes invites great, great difficulties into our lives. Let me take you to a number of verses. By the way, God is not interested in running away from credit for suffering. John MacArthur said in a a sermon I was watching one time, he says, you know, we feel as if we have to get God off the hook when it comes to suffering. He says, God's not interested in being taken off the hook. Let me start in Lamentations. Lamentations. And, you know, one of the things that I'm going to talk about in just a minute, how important it is to be gentle with people when they're going through suffering. And, and Lamentations is a book of the prophet Jeremiah just crying out about how awful things were for Israel. And listen to what God says. Uh, chapter 3, verse beginning, verse 37. Who can command, God's saying this about himself, who can command things to happen without the Lord's permission? Does not the Most High send both both calamity and good? And by the way, in Hebrew, that word for calamity is simply two letters, ra. And in Hebrew, ra means it's the generic word for evil. Amos chapter 3, verse 6. This, I've shared this with some people before. This was the verse that just took the wind out of my sails in the week after, uh, the week of 9-11, it's Twin Towers attacks. I read this verse and I thought, I don't remember ever reading this before in my life and I've read through the Bible many times. Amos chapter 3, verse 6. When the ram's horn blows a warning, shouldn't the people be alarmed? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has planned it? And after we knew that Islamic extremists had flown airplanes into towers in the city, my instinctive explanation was it's just a bunch of nut jobs who are over the top with their religious zeal. And then I read this. Because I was wrestling with, you know, is it just fanatics? And, of course, then you have to ask the question, if, if, if it was just them and not God being involved, where was God? Why didn't he step up to the plate and stop that? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has planned it? And one more, again in Isaiah, chapter 45, verse 7. I create the light, God speaking again, I create the light and make the darkness. I send good times and bad times. I, the Lord, am the one who does these things. As I tell people all the time, 
if these things were true about God, that he brings all this suffering, that he's ultimately behind it, and God wasn't good, then I have a right to be frightened. If God isn't loving, then I have a right to be frightened. But the Bible tells us that he is good and that he loves us with an everlasting love. And so even though my suffering leaves me with many questions about why, I don't doubt his love and I don't doubt his goodness. And even with my questions unanswered, I can rest in him and I can still worship him. Because the fact of the matter is difficulties not only glorify him, they purify us. And after watching both my own life and the life, lives of many others who've suffered down through the years, I, I, I'm going to say it this way. If you reject the idea that God is ultimately behind all of our suffering, I can almost guarantee you it will sap your faith every time your life takes an unwanted turn. And conversely, if you embrace this, it's going to steady your faith every time you go through suffering. I'll also say this. The time to learn these truths is before you go into suffering, not while you're in it. It's really hard to learn this while you're in the thick of it. But if you're well-equipped and well-prepared, going into suffering can make a huge difference. All right, last point. Let me wrap up with before answers, serving those who suffer. In other words, before you give answers to people who are in the thick of suffering, there needs to be some other things to take place. If you go to a person that's suffering and grieving deeply and you simply say, I know I have some things to share with you about why you're suffering. God wants you to glorify him. No, no, no. That's not where we start. We start with empathy. First Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 uh, or chapter 1, verse 4, Paul says that, that God has allowed suffering to come in our lives in part so that he can then comfort us and then that we can share that comfort with other people. And most of you, I think, would say, out of great suffering, you have been able to minister other, to other people better than you could before. God comforts us in the midst of our suffering so that we can turn around and, and comfort others as well. And so we start with saying, I am so sorry for what you're going through. Let me pray for you. But not only that we're empathizing, but then, then the next step is, how can I help you? Aid. We empathize and we provide aid. I'm here. I'm going to help you. James reminds us in James 2.15, what good is it? You've got a man who's hungry and a man who has no clothes and you say to him, God bless you, brother. Be warm and well-fed. Sayonara. And we go on our way. And we've done nothing to help him with his need. We empathize. We provide aid. And then we get to the answers. And as I was saying early in this series, uh, we get further with people, especially people who don't know Christ, we get further with them in apologetics when we are, we are moving toward answers by asking questions. And so we might say something like, 
Is it possible? Have you ever considered it possible that suffering would have some value? True, if there is a God, we believe that he permits suffering. Scripture says that. But is the only possibility that suffering is evil? Is it at least possible that God has designed it for beneficial purposes? I think that's the first thing that I might say to someone who is suffering. We want to try to get to the point of why. And then secondly, I think I would go to the gospel. When people are suffering, by the way, do you you have any idea how many people have come to faith in Jesus Christ in the thick of suffering? And all of a sudden, they don't have the answers that they thought they have. All of a sudden, life doesn't make sense the way it made sense when everything was going smoothly. Many people come to Jesus Christ out of trauma, out of some kind of problem. And so it's a natural um, pathway for us to begin to talk about the gospel and to say something like God chose to suffer and die for you for you I I mean to to give up his one and only son in in a horrifically torturous way for you what does his voluntary suffering you know we suffer many times not by choice And yet Jesus suffered voluntarily. What does his voluntary suffering mean? Dorothy Sayers was a Christian novelist and writer in the um, passed away mid-20th century. And um, she said this, for whatever reason God chose to make man as he is, limited and suffering and subject to sorrows and death, he had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. Whatever game he is playing with his creation, she doesn't mean it blasphemous at all, he has kept his own rules and played fair. What she means is he can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. He has himself gone through the whole of human experience from the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restriction of hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death what a tremendous opportunity we have to speak to hurting people suffering people about the God who suffered on their behalf and suffered specifically um, for them individually first uh, first Peter chapter 3 verse 18 let me read this and then we'll wrap up first Peter it's after Hebrews there we go Verse 18, Christ suffered for our sins once for all time. He never sinned. Let me just stop there. One of the things that I have heard from you, people in this church, time and time again, when they go through really tough trials, they'll say something like, I wonder if there's some sin in my life, either now or in the past, that I've forgotten about. And what they mean is it's... It's so grievous that it has led to this. And and as we, we talk about these answers are not only for people outside the body of Christ, but for each other. And as you minister to people who are in the midst of suffering, remind them it's true that God does sometimes discipline us, but the vast majority of suffering that we go through cannot be linked. There's not a direct correlation between what we've done and what's now happening to us. Why? 
What, what do we sing in the song? Jesus paid some of it. Paid it all. He paid the price for our sins, past, present, future. And I think sometimes it is a defective um, view of the doctrine of sin. And we forget that the sin that I committed today is just as grievous, even though it might be small, compared to one that I committed 30 years ago. We, we do this combing through our lives to see some sin that's worthy of this level of suffering. I must have done something horrific. Well, you did and continue to. And Jesus paid it all. Oh, got sidetracked. Verse 18, he never sinned. And yet he died this horrible death. That's where I was going with this. He never sinned, but he had this incredible suffering. Died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. He suffered physical death, but he was raised to life in the spirit. What a wonderful verse to share with unbelievers. Say, in the midst of your suffering, just to let you know, your God suffered for you to bring you to himself. And then the last thought under this Will suffering last forever? No, just lasts for this life. Isn't that good news? That suffering comes to an end one day for the children of God. When there's no more death, no more sorrow, no more tears. It's going to last for this life. Someone has said you're either, you're either in the midst of suffering or you've just come out of suffering or you're about to go into suffering. A lot of truth to that. The older you get, the more you'll see that to be the case. Suffering's going to endure for this life. The gospel defeated sin in this life, but will be in the next life that the gospel defeats suffering. Just a couple of thoughts as I wrap up. I think Christian faith offers a better explanation for suffering than any other faith or any other non-faith. I, I, I think Dawkins and his crowd are absolutely impoverished when it comes to give some kind of hope to suffering people. Christian faith offers a better explanation for suffering than any other philosophy, any other faith. Secondly, Christian faith offers an eternal future without suffering, without suffering. And lastly, Christian faith believes that there's value in suffering. One, for the glory of God, but two, as I said, often we find that we grow most in our faith in the midst of Christian suffering. So let me close with 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. So be truly glad. There is a wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while, meaning in this life. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. Don't miss that. There are some people whose faith has been shown to be a fraud in the wake of great suffering. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold. Though your faith is far more precious, meaning precious to you and precious to God, than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory, not just God, but you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. Father, none of us love suffering, none of us desire it, none of us pray for it, 
none of us welcome it. I, for one, am so thankful, though, to know that I am not suffering by accident or by the cosmic oopsie-daisy of someone else's free will. That nothing happens to me that has not first passed through your loving and tender and good hands. To me, that makes all the difference in the world. I suffer in the good hands of the suffering Savior who so loved me and gave his life for me. And I want to pray for brothers and sisters right now here in this room or who are maybe listening on the internet that you would minister hope to them we all need hope in the midst of their suffering in the midst of their hurt in the midst of their grief minister hope to them that they might see a golden sliver on the edge of the dark clouds that they're seeing and be reminded that you don't do anything haphazardly, accidentally, without purposefulness. And nor do you exert your wrath on your people, but only your loving, shaping and molding and conforming us more and more to the image of Christ. allowing us the great privilege of maximizing your glory for surely when people see your people suffer they see a greater glimpse of your majesty than they ever could when they watch us in our pleasures help us to be ministers of the good news of Jesus Christ to the world that suffers around us in Jesus name Amen